0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Dear Enemy by Jean Webster Part 18 July 24. My dear madam, I have a shocking scandal to report about the superintendent of the John Greer home. Don't let it get into the newspapers, please. I can picture the spicy details of the investigation prior to her removal by the cruelty. I was sitting in the sunshine by my open window this morning, reading a sweet book on the Froebel theory of child culture. Never lose your temper, always speak kindly to the little ones. Though they may appear bad, they are not so in reality. It is either that they are not feeling well or have nothing interesting to do. Never punish. Simply deflect their attention. I was entertaining a very loving, uplifted attitude toward all this young life about me when my attention was attracted by a group of little boys beneath the window. Ah, John, don't hurt it! Let it go! Kill it quick! And above their remonstrances rose the agonized squealing of some animal in pain. I dropped Froebel and, running downstairs, burst upon them from the side door. They saw me coming and scattered right and left. "'revealing Johnny Cobden engaged in torturing a mouse. "'I will spare you the grisly details. "'I called to one of the boys to come and drown the creature quick. "'John,' I seized by the collar, "'and dragged him squirming and kicking in at the kitchen door. "'He is a big, hulking boy of thirteen, "'and he fought like a little tiger, "'holding on to posts and door-jams as we passed. Ordinarily, I doubt if I could have handled him, but that one sixteenth Irish that I possess was all on top, and I was fighting mad. We burst into the kitchen, and I hastily looked around for a means of chastisement. The pancake-turner was the first utensil that met my eyes. I seized it, and beat that child with all my strength, until I had reduced him to a cowering, whimpering mendicant for mercy, instead of the fighting little bully he had been four minutes before and then who should suddenly burst into the midst of this explosion but Dr. McRae. His face was blank with astonishment. He strode over and took the pancake-turner out of my hand and set the boy on his feet. Johnny got behind him and clung. I was so angry that I really couldn't talk. It was all I could do not to cry. Come, we will take him up to the office, was all the doctor said, and we marched out. Johnny keeping as far from me as possible and limping conspicuously. We left him in the outer office and went into my library and shut the door. "'What in the world has the child done?' he asked. At that I simply laid my head down on the table and began to cry. I was utterly exhausted, both emotionally and physically. It had taken all the strength I possessed to make the Pancake-Turner effective. I sobbed out all the bloody details, and he told me not to think about it. The mouse was dead now. Then he got me some water to drink and told me to keep on crying till I was tired. It would do me good. I am not sure that he didn't pat me on the head. Anyway, it was his best professional manner. I have watched him administer the same treatment a dozen times to hysterical orphans. And this was the first time in a week that we had spoken beyond the formality of good-morning. Well, as soon as I had got to the stage where I could sit up and laugh, intermittently dabbing my eyes with a wad of handkerchief, we began a review of Johnny's case. The boy has a morbid heredity, and may be slightly defective, says Sandy. We must deal with the fact as we would with any other disease. Even normal boys are often cruel. A child's moral sense is undeveloped at thirteen. Then he suggested that I bathe my eyes with hot water and resume my dignity, which I did, and we had Johnny in. He stood, by preference, through the entire interview. The doctor talked to him, oh, so sensibly and kindly and humanely. John put up the plea that the mouse was a pest and ought to be killed. The doctor replied that the welfare of the human race demanded the sacrifice of many animals for its own good, not for revenge but that the sacrifice must be carried out with the least possible hurt to the animal he explained about the mouse's nervous system and how the poor little creature had no means of defence it was a cowardly thing to hurt it wantonly he told john to try to develop imagination enough to look at things from the other person's point of view even if the other person was only a mouse then he went to the bookcase and took down my copy of burns and told the boy what a great poet he was and how all scotchmen loved his memory and this is what he wrote about a mouse said sandy turning to the wee sleeked carrin timorous beastie which he read and explained to the lad as only a scotchman could johnny departed penitent and sandy redirected his professional attention to me he said i was tired and in need of a change why not go to the adirondacks for a week He and Betsy and Mr. Witherspoon would make themselves into a committee to run the asylum. You know, that's exactly what I was longing to do. I need a shifting of ideas and some pine-scented air. My family opened the camp last week, and think I'm awful not to join them. They won't understand that when you accept a position like this, you can't casually toss it aside whenever you feel like it. But for a few days I can easily manage. My asylum is wound up like an eight-day clock, and will run until a week from next Monday at four p.m., when my train will return me. Then I shall be comfortably settled again before you arrive, with no errant fancies in my brain. Meanwhile, Master John is in a happily chastened frame of mind and body, and I rather suspect that Sandy's moralizing had the more force, because it was preceded by my Pancake-Turner. But one thing I know. Suzanne Estelle is terrified whenever I step into her kitchen. I casually picked up the potato masher this morning while I was commenting upon last night's over-salty soup, and she ran to cover behind the woodshed door. Tomorrow at nine I set out on my travels, after preparing the way with five telegrams. And, oh, you can't imagine how I'm looking forward to being a gay, carefree young thing again, to canoeing on the lake, and tramping in the woods, and dancing at the clubhouse. I was in a state of delirium all night long at the prospect. Really, I hadn't realized how mortally tired I had become of all this asylum scenery. What you need, said Sandy to me, is to get away for a little and sow some wild oats. That diagnosis was positively clairvoyant. I can't think of anything in the world I'd rather do than sow a few wild oats. I'll come back with fresh energy, ready to welcome you, and a busy summer as ever, Sally. P.S. Jimmy and Gordon are going to be up there. How I wish you could join us. A husband is very discommoding. Camp McBride, July 29. Dear Judy, This is to tell you that the mountains are higher than usual, the woods greener, and the lake bluer. People seem late about coming up this year. The Harriman's camp is the only other one at our end of the lake that is open. The club-house is very scantily supplied with dancing men, but we have as house-guest an obliging young politician who likes to dance, so I am not discommoded by the general scarcity. The affairs of the nation and the rearing of orphans are alike delegated to the background, while we paddle about among the lily pads of this delectable lake. I look forward with reluctance to 7.56 next Monday morning when I turn my back on the mountains. The awful thing about a vacation is that, the moment it begins, your happiness is already clouded by its approaching end. I hear a voice on the veranda asking if Sally is to be found within or without. Adieu, S. AUGUST 3 DEAR JUDY Back at the John Greer, re shouldering the burdens of the coming generation. What should meet my eyes upon entering these grounds but John Cobden, of pancake turner memory, wearing a badge upon his sleeve? I turned it to me and read S.P.C.A. in letters of gold. The doctor, during my absence, has formed a local branch of the Cruelty to Animals and made Johnny its president. I hear that yesterday he stopped the workmen on the foundation for the new farm cottage and scolded them severely for whipping their horses up the incline. None of all this strikes anyone but me as funny. There's a lot of news, but with you due in four days, why bother to write? Just one delicious bit I am saving for the end. So hold your breath. You are going to receive a thrill on page four. You should hear Sadie Kate squeal. Jane is cutting her hair. Instead of wearing it in two tight braids like this, Our little Colleen will in the future look like this. Them pigtails got on my nerves, says Jane. You can see how much more stylish and becoming the present coiffure is. I think somebody will be wanting to adopt her. Only Sadie Kate is such an independent, manly little creature, she is eminently fitted by nature to shift for herself. I must save adopting parents for the helpless ones. You should see our new clothes. I can't wait for this assemblage of rosebuds to burst upon you. And you should have seen those blue ginghamed eyes brighten when the new frocks were actually given out, three for each girl, all different colors and all perfectly private personal property, with the owner's indelible name inside the collar. Mrs. Lippett's lazy system of having each child draw from the wash a promiscuous dress each week was an insult to feminine nature. Sadie Kate is squealing like a baby pig. I must go to see if Jane has by mistake clipped off an ear. Jane hasn't. Sadie's excellent ears are still intact. She is just squealing on principle, the way one does in a dentist's chair, under the belief that it is going to hurt the next instant. I really can't think of anything else to write except my news. So here it is, and I hope you like it. I am engaged to be married. My love to you both. S. McBee The John Greer Home, November fifteenth, dear Judy, Betsy and I are just back from a gyro in our new motor car. It undoubtedly does add to the pleasure of institution life. The car, of its own accord, turned up Longridge Road and stopped before the gates of Shadywell. The chains were up and the shutters battened down, and the place looked closed and gloomy and rain soaked. It wore a sort of fall of the House of Usher air and didn't in the least resemble the cheerful house that used to greet me hospitably of an afternoon. I hate to have our nice summer ended. It seems as though a section of my life was shut away behind me, and the unknown future was pressing awfully close. Positively, I'd like to postpone that wedding another six months, but I'm afraid poor Gordon would make too dreadful a fuss. Don't think I'm getting wobbly, for I'm not. It's just that somehow I need more time to think about it and March is getting nearer every day. I know absolutely that I am doing the most sensible thing. Everybody, man or woman, is the better for being nicely and appropriately and cheerfully married. But, oh dear, oh dear, I do hate upheavals, and this is going to be such a world-without-end upheaval. Sometimes, when the day's work is over and I'm tired, I haven't the spirit to rise and meet it. And now, especially since you've bought Shadywell and are going to be here every summer, I resent having to leave. Next year, when I'm far away, I'll be consumed with homesickness, thinking of all the busy happy times at the John Greer, with you and Betsy and Percy and our grumbly Scotchman working away cheerfully without me. How can anything ever make up to a mother for the loss of a hundred and seven children? I trust that Judy, Jr., stood the journey into town without upsetting her usual poise i am sending her a bit gifty made partly by myself and chiefly by jane but two rows i must inform you were done by the doctor one only gradually plums the depths of sandy's nature after a ten months acquaintance with the man i discover that he knows how to knit an accomplishment he picked up in his boyhood from an old shepherd on the scotch moors He dropped in three days ago and stayed for tea, really in almost his old-friendly mood, but he has since stiffened up again to the same man of granite we knew all summer. I've given up trying to make him out. I suppose, however, that any one might be expected to be a bit down with a wife in an insane asylum. I wish he'd talk about it once. It's awful having such a shadow hovering in the background of your thoughts and never coming out into plain sight. I know this letter doesn't contain a word of the kind of news that you like to hear, but it's that beastly twilight hour of a damp November day, and I'm in a beastly, uncheerful mood. I'm awfully afraid that I'm developing into a temperamental person, and heaven knows Gordon can supply all the temperament that one family needs. I don't know where we'll land if I don't preserve my sensibly stolid, cheerful nature. Have you really decided to go south with Jervis? I appreciate your feeling, to a slight extent, about not wanting to be separated from a husband, but it does seem sort of hazardous to me to move so young a daughter to the tropics. The children are playing blind man's bluff in the lower corridor. I think I'll have a romp with them and try to be in a more affable mood before resuming my pen. A bientot, Sally. P.S. These November nights are pretty cold. And we are getting ready to move the camps indoors. Our Indians are very pampered young savages at present, with a double supply of blankets and hot water bottles. I shall hate to see the camps go. They have done a lot for us. Our lads will be as tough as Canadian trappers when they come in. November twenty, dear Judy, your motherly solicitude is sweet, but I didn't mean what I said. Of course, it's perfectly safe to convey Judy, junior to the temperately tropical lands that are washed by the Caribbean. She'll thrive, as long as you don't set her absolutely on top of the equator, and your bungalow, shaded by palms and fanned by sea-breezes, with an ice-machine in the backyard and an English doctor across the bay, sounds made for the rearing of babies. My objections were all due to the selfish fact that I and the John Greer are going to be lonely without you this winter. I really think it's entrancing to have a husband who engages in such picturesque pursuits as financing tropical railroads and developing asphalt lakes and rubber groves and mahogany forests. I wish that Gordon would take to life in those picturesque countries. I'd be more thrilled by the romantic possibilities of the future. Washington seems awfully commonplace compared with Honduras and Nicaragua and the islands of the Caribbean. I'll be down to wave goodbye. bye Adio. Sally. November 24. Dear Gordon, Judy has gone back to town and is sailing next week for Jamaica, where she is to make her headquarters while Jervis cruises about adjacent waters on these entertaining new ventures of his. Couldn't you engage in traffic in the South Seas? I think I'd feel pleasanter about leaving my asylum if you had something romantic and adventurous to offer instead. And think how beautiful you'd be in those white linen clothes. I really believe I might be able to stay in love with a man quite permanently if he always dressed in white. You can't imagine how I miss Judy. Her absence leaves a dreadful hole in my afternoons. Can't you run up for a weekend soon? I think the sight of you would be very cheering, and I'm feeling awfully down of late. You know, my dear Gordon, I like you much better when you're right here before my eyes than when I merely think about you from a distance. I believe you must have a sort of hypnotic influence. Occasionally, after you've been away a long time, your spell wears a little thin. But when I see you, it all comes back. You've been away now a long, long time. So please, come fast and bewitch me over again. S. End of Part 18